The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tolst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. Keep the music flowing. We'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. I'm Leo Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to The Opus, an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. Every month we delve into an album's inner workings and lasting impact. What makes a record not only withstand the test of time, but continue to influence the world around us? I'm your host, Carrie Corgan, and this month we're discussing Jeff Buckley's 1994 debut, Grace, the stories behind and beyond the album. Maybe you're a longtime fan who wants to dive deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener curious for more. Either way, you're in the right place. I lost myself on a cool, damp night gave myself in that misty light was hypnotized by a strange delight under a lilac tree it's 1997 an unseasonably hot spring night in memphis tennessee Jeff Buckley and Keith Foti, Jeff's friend and fellow musician, are driving around listening to music. They're on their way to rehearse material for Buckley's soon-to-be-recorded second album, but they've gotten lost. So they pull off the road, near Wolf River, a tributary of the Mississippi. They might be lost, but they're taking it easy, just hanging out. It's there that Buckley decides to go for a swim, fully clothed. He swims out into the slow-moving water, and Fody yells out to him. A boat is fast approaching. 
Buckley gets out of the way, but a bigger boat follows, disturbing the once peaceful water even more. In moments, Buckley has disappeared. They find his body four days later. His untimely death is a tragedy that reverberates to this day. Jeff Buckley, the person, hasn't been alive in 22 years, but his work lives on. Since 1997, there have been five compilation albums, five live albums, a box set, and an expanded reissue of Grace. Through his art, his voice continues to flourish and inspire. But unfortunately, beyond the vision of his work, the fact of Buckley's death is always close at hand. This podcast is no exception. Our culture can't help but romanticize artists who die young. Jimmy, Janice, Kurt, Amy, the list sadly goes on. It's impossible to not think of all the what-ifs, all the could-have-beens, the hypothetical scenarios of alternate histories where they'd lived on. Not even the work released during their lives are safe. The way we listen to it changes. Maybe we hear it with an appreciation we didn't have before. Maybe we search for clues to narratives that don't exist. In our prior episode, musicians Lizzie Hale and Miles Kennedy, along with critics Daphne A. Brooks and Annie Zaleski, joined me to discuss what set Buckley's grace apart in its own time. In this episode, I'm joined once again by Annie and Daphne, along with critics Warren Zanes and David Brown, to talk about how Buckley's tragic death, and everything that came after, casts a long shadow over the way we listen to grace today. Posthumous fame and legacy are contentious subjects, and critics and audiences alike have a nasty habit of revering artists more in death than when they were alive. For artists like Buckley, who left us too soon or too suddenly, death builds a mythology around them that leaves audiences with questions that are often difficult to ask. Questions I'll strive to find answers for in this episode. I asked my guests about the shift in perception that takes place in listening to an artist's work after death beginning with Warren Zanes, professor of songwriting criticism at New York University and author of Petty, the biography. In the case where the artist has a long career, we have some concept, something really to mourn. Particularly in the age of the social media, we get to understand how they're valued, as opposed to if it's a short career, maybe one or two singles on the charts, I was a faculty member at Princeton, and I was asked to speak about him in like a dorm 
And it was the first time I'd really interacted with next generation folk in a formal setting to talk about his music. And I was just startled at the number of young people who believed that he had committed suicide and who really kind of identified with his repertoire as being especially melancholic because of their presumed ideas about the dimensions of the tragedy surrounding his death, which I stand by as being incorrect. You know, I know there's been controversy in the past about presumptions about his passing. Having lived through that moment in real time, even from a distance, but having interacted with his mother when I was working on the book, there's no doubt in my mind that his death was an accident. That's Daphne A. Brooks professor of African-American studies at Yale University and author of the 33 and a Third anthology series volume on grace. Critic Annie Zaleski has also witnessed people's inclinations to look deeper in the wake of Buckley's death. People try to find clues. It really kind of imbues the art with more meaning than potentially than if he had just released several albums. The fact that there's only one full album makes it so much more special. In recent years, we've lost a number of musical legends in quick succession. David Bowie, Prince, Tom Petty, just to name a few. Surprising losses of luminaries who left massive impacts on music history. It's happened with such regularity that we now have a 21st century playbook for how we'll proceed. There will be an outpouring of remembrances of their greatest works, the contributions they made to music. We'll mourn them by re-listening to their sprawling catalogs with a deeper appreciation for the ways in which they so greatly affected us. And all of this will be a shared experience through the internet. All to say, fans have a roadmap of sorts when it comes to processing the death of a popular artist with a lengthy career. But when someone young, promising, and on the cusp of major stardom dies suddenly, a prickly question comes to mind, but it's a question worth asking. Can tragedy make an artist more popular in death than in life? Yeah, for whatever reason, we do romanticize early death. So that can, in a way, lift an artist's catalog, lift their public evaluation, because we project what we always have projected onto a young artist's death. We see it in the light of high romanticism. And then when we listen, we listen slightly differently. It's a bit of information that changes how we take it in. What's interesting is I think with posthumous fame, he unfortunately is known so much for his death rather than his art. And I think that's the flip side of it and almost the shame of it. There's that sort of asterisk where you kind of know what happened next. It's a very complicated thing because it benefits the record in terms of more people might have heard about it. But at the same time, it can't just stand on its own as greatness because there's always that tragedy almost that's kind of lurking in the background. The general kind of mournfulness attached to his untimely passing combined with rock and roll mythology and the long roll call of greats that we lost of young age, especially, you know, 27 Club, as it's called, Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janice. But I think that kind of mythology within the culture has driven at least a section of the fan attachment to his sound and to his story. Obviously, no one is really ready for death, but some artists with lengthy careers do try to be as prepared as possible. They have clear instructions for what to do in the event of their passing, 
or have worked on arranging their legacy before they're gone. Few have that foresight. Most die before they even get to that stage. So what happens then when there's really no game plan? Well, I think it can be chaotic in how the businesses run because many artists have a really big hand in how their operations are run. And if it's an unexpected death, suddenly in the space of a day, the person who ran the business is gone and the rest of the office has to scramble to run the shop. And I think it can be a bit of a vision crisis because you typically have that individual who provided the vision and everybody else was able to focus on execution. Suddenly the office is without their visionary. They're having to spread that part of it across the office. And it can be a combative moment where people are fighting for power. But it also can be a confusing moment because you'll have different understandings for what they think the artist's vision was. Right. And often someone will step up who might be close to the artist and say, this is what's best. This is what they'd want. But they're maybe only familiar with one facet of a multidimensional person. It's so tough. Yeah, and maybe we, the public, the way we take in artists is very personal. So when we see somebody else guiding the vision of that artist, we've got more thoughts on how that should be done than we really rightly should have. It's a conflicted moment. And then if you don't agree with the way that person represents the artist's vision, It's within the fan community you have these disruptions. So I think it's, by definition, a sloppy handoff. I don't see how it can be otherwise. In the ensuing years, there's been no shortage of music released from Buckley's estate. At the time of his death, he was at work on his second album, tentatively titled My Sweetheart the Drunk, which was intended to be a radical shift from grace. Polished studio tracks and demos from these sessions were released as the double album, Sketches, for My Sweetheart the Drunk in 1998, almost a year to date after his death. It was the first of many releases to be made in the coming years. In a way, it begs the question, when there's no more artists, what do we do with all the stuff that they had cooking? How do we navigate the ethics of this tricky endeavor, balancing the heart, a want for any precious remaining recordings to not be shuttered away, with the wallet, a desire for those invested to continue to make money off of these assets? And ultimately, how do we know if any of this is what Jeff Buckley would want? I put this question to Rolling Stone senior writer David Brown, author of several books, including Dream Brother, The Lives and Music of Jeff and Tim Buckley. He's also the co-author of the forthcoming book Jeff Buckley, His Own Voice, a collection of previously unpublished lyrics, photos, and journal entries slated for release this fall. Would Jeff have wanted some of that material out? You know, that's always a tough question with a lot of these posthumous releases with uh, Jimi Hendrix and so on. 
I'd like to think that Jeff would have wanted to have heard the music that he made, for example, with Tom Verlaine and the songs that he was writing on his own in Memphis, even though it wasn't finished and he was very particular about the sound. But, you know, I'd like to think that he would want us all to know that he was creative right up to the end. He was in some ways wiped out from touring behind Grace for you know, a year and a half or so nonstop, and that kind of wore him down. But he wasn't creatively spent, and he was already kind of thinking ahead to, well, what's my next chapter, and how can I make music that's not just uh, rehashing what I did? And I'd like to think that, you know, he would at least appreciate that that other side of him, that possible next chapter in his life is something we can all at least have a glimpse of. It's a complicated thing. If an artist has unfinished material, you might have close collaborators come in and finish the song either because the deceased artist left you know, detailed instructions or else they worked with the musician so closely, they kind of knew what direction they would go. And in a case like that, you can just tell that there's a big difference. You can tell that there's care involved and it really contains and extends the spirit of what the original artist would probably like. In other cases, when it's, you know, oh, we're going to put stuff out and finish it, I always raise my eyebrow at it. It depends on who is shepherding that into the world? I remember, especially with sketches from my sweetheart, the drunk, that there was a lot of online lines drawn in the sand between fans who wanted the music and fans who thought it was disrespectful to release this music that he was not ready to release yet. I fell into both camps in terms of sympathy. I understood the kind of investment and protecting the presumptions that we have about what Jeff wanted. And then I also understand that he, without knowing about his untimely passing, didn't get to weigh in on what he would want about this situation, about whether to release or not release under these circumstances. Life's too short and too complicated for people behind desks and people behind masks to be ruining other people's lives, initiating force against other people's lives. on the basis of their income, their color, their class, their religious beliefs, their whatever. So what purpose do these posthumous releases really serve? Do they help paint a more vivid portrait of who Jeff Buckley was as a person and his creative process? Or do they mythologize him, forever holding up a larger-than-life version of him in the glow of his tragedy? Hopefully we're capable of doing both. I think you can use a posthumous release for kind of grieving. You know, remember what we loved about the artist. And you can also use it as a way of better understanding that artist because you're suddenly taking a different kind of retrospective view. So I think both are possible and neither are wrong. But I also think when we saw the music business become less focused on the sales of the latest record because the sales were so low, you know, even with artists who had a considerable marketplace presence, they may not be selling that many records. And so you see big artists having to shift the legacy work even when they're alive and well on the road. And so I think those artists are the ones who are kind of ahead of the game. As someone who's an archivist, I do feel compelled to want to know more and to want to be able to fully contextualize as much as possible 
the richness and the varied dimensions of his creativity. So from a historian standpoint, from a cultural critic standpoint, I think that that archive is very powerful and useful to us in continuing to historicize who Jeff Buckley was as an artist. I think that we all have so much sadness attached to the tragedy of the unfinished that that becomes you know, a breaking point for many people. But absolutely, to sustain a certain kind of mythology around everything attached to both his career and his death. On the other hand, it's all we've got at this point beyond the masterpiece that was Grace. There's a lot I would do to be able to hear what Jeff Buckley would sound like and what he would be thinking and feeling and wanting to respond to in 2019. I think Jeff is so interesting and Grace is so interesting because, you know, you really have insights and mythology. I mean, the record itself is just so different and sounds just so otherworldly, so striking and unique. And it almost feels like someone who was a ghost almost released it just because it's just so different still and even just sounds like nothing else that's ever been released. I'm glad there have been sort of the sketches just because it really is sort of a direct line into his thought process and a direct line into his creativity. And it's not sort of being buffed up or anything like that. You know, it's really giving people say, no, this is him raw. This is him as he was creating and thinking. One in nine pearls in your kiss, a singing smile, coffee smell, lilac skin, your flame in me. Each of those releases has added to a different piece of the puzzle that's been important because, I mean, he did only leave behind one full album and that was a studio record. So I think some of the, uh, the live releases that have come out have been really helpful in showing how he transformed that sound on Grace to the stage and how he elaborated it. I mean, he wasn't just always doing rote, note-for-note versions live. He would stretch things out sometimes, let the band kind of jam a little bit in some ways, uh, stretch his voice out. And so I think those live recordings are really important to show where he was possibly going next musically. He started bad-mouthing Grace not long after it came out because he said a lot of his kind of indie rock friends in New York and in Memphis were playing a much more uh, raw kind of form of music. And so he started dismissing it to his friends that it was too slick and pop. And I think Jeff had a very raw side of his music. And I think you hear that come out in the live recordings and you hear it come out in the parts of uh, sketches from My Sweetheart the Drunk that he made with Tom Verlaine and in Memphis where you see the possible next evolution, even though it wasn't crystallized, of his music. And I think you kind of see like where he wanted to um, infuse a bit more of, a, of an indie punk sensibility into his music, which maybe wasn't always natural. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. And so I think those recordings are really important to see where he was going next. He, he wasn't interested in making Grace 2, even though I'm sure the record company wanted that and they wanted Last Goodbye 2. He was already done with that sound and that mood, and he wanted to take it somewhere else. So I think some of the studio recordings that were left behind are really important to kind of show where he was heading. Music is finite, though. 
there's only so much recorded material in Jeff Buckley's relatively small archive left to release. Once that's done, how else can his legacy be maintained? I've mentioned a couple of long careers, Neil Young and Bob Dylan, and they've done quite a bit of recording. So if somebody doesn't have that same kind of backlog of content, then it's up to the creative ambitions of the people running the estate. Even if there isn't new content that we haven't ever heard before, sometimes there's a reinvention of the old that's really exciting. You know, the Beatles did it with Let It Be. You know, when they released Let It Be Naked, it was an offense to people at first, but I think only because it was one of the first examples of that. And then they've later gone on to do all this kind of rejiggering of classic Beatles tracks, and sometimes it's pretty damn exciting. So again, who are the creative forces running these shows? You know, the Beatles have the benefit of two of the Beatles are still alive to represent the vision. And then they have Olivia Harrison and Yoko there who are so capable in representing the Beatles who are no longer with us. That's a best case scenario. You start to expect cool stuff and wonder what's coming next. David, you're working on a collection of his actual writings. How do you think work like that will give us insights that his actual recordings can't? His own voice includes photo reproductions of like his record collection and his cassettes and his book collections, some of the books that he's left behind. And I found the record collection, especially the, uh, the rows and rows of cassettes, really interesting because right there you see the range of his interests. There's classical, there's punk rock, there's classic rock, there's everything you know, from uh, Beethoven to Joni Mitchell to the Bad Brains, you know, on and on. And that was, for me, really interesting because he clearly he grew up with a wide range of music from various sources in his life. And see those collections just kind of up close and personal to look down the spines of all those cassettes was really revealing, I think, of a guy who clearly loved music. He loved all kinds of music. I think he found release and intense gratification in any kind of music. I don't think he was necessarily a fan of the Spice Girls when he passed away, but I mean, he was seen to be a fan of like just about everything else. I think fans will hopefully appreciate peeks into his musical life like that that maybe they hadn't seen before. This is the end of our second installment on Grace, but hang tight. In our final episode, we'll be exploring the topic of legacy further by going straight to the source, speaking with those tasked with doing the delicate work of managing Jeff Buckley's estate and keeping his image alive. Be sure to check out our additional retrospective coverage of Grace at consequenceofsound.net. To keep up with the articles, podcasts, and everything we have in store for this season, find us on Facebook at the Opus CPN or consequenceofsound.net slash the Opus. If you're into the show and you've got a moment to spare, I'd love it if you could give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or check out Podchaser, where you can review and discuss each episode. Here's a recent review from a user who goes by the handle A Grateful Amateur over on Apple Podcasts. My fave kind of music podcast, a thoughtful, engaging, highly produced deep dive into one album. I crave podcasts like these, so I am thrilled to have stumbled upon this. If you're a fan of Song Exploder, Say Yes, MTC, Lost Notes, and or BBC Radio music documentaries, you'll love this. Thanks, Grateful Amateur. That's huge praise. I really can't thank you enough. 
As always, if you want to chat more, you can find me on Twitter at Carrie Corgan, C-A-R-R-I-E-C-O-U-R-O-G-E-N. And I want to thank again our guests Daphne A. Brooks and David Brown, Annie Zaleski, and Warren Zanes for all their valuable insights. Warren Zane's latest biography is on Tom Petty, but if you enjoyed this contemplation of legacy, you might also want to check out his 33 and a third installment on Dusty Springfield's Dusty in Memphis. And in addition to the forthcoming Jeff Buckley, His Own Voice, David Brown is also the author of the recent book Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, the wild definitive saga of rock's greatest supergroup. All that expanded content beyond Grace we mentioned, that's all yours to readily listen to in the near future. On August 23rd, a number of Buckley releases hit streaming services like Apple Music and Spotify, including Grace, Sketches for My Sweetheart the Drunk, and Mystery White Boy, all packaged with rare recordings and bonus tracks, including Buckley's final demo of Sky Blue Skin, which is being officially released for the very first time. Buckley's live material is coming too. Live at Wetlands, August 94. Live from Seattle, May 95. Cabaret Metro, May 95 and Buckley's Live at Columbia Records Radio Hour set from 95 will all be available. The Opus is a co-production between Consequence of Sound and Sony, written and hosted by Carrie Corgan and recorded in New York City at Acast by Ali Sprung and Tim Ruggieri. Editing and production by Cap Lackard. Our theme music is by Coach Hop. Find more at coachhop.bandcamp.com. Series artwork by Stephen Fish. Consequence Podcast Network. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Price. It's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts.